Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 20. We are almost done, y'all. We are done a couple-year journey through the book of Revelation, and we are coming today to like the, the moment where we see an end and a beginning, and we're going to spend two more weeks after this, and then, then I'm out. I'm out for a while. Maybe 15 years from now, I'll get the, the energy and vigor to do this again, but uh, we're, we're almost there. Uh, as you're turning there, I do want to thank you. I was thinking about this today. Uh, just thank you for the way in which you allowed me to, to dive into this difficult, tricky, but beautiful book. Uh, you guys have been so responsive. In a day where, let's be honest, a lot of us, we listen to hear somebody tell us what we're already believing is true, not so much to learn, don't we? Like we, we listen to have our predetermined opinion affirmed and not to learn something new. And you guys have been so incredible just being patient to open this book up. And I can ask that you continue to do that for three more weeks as we jump in. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, as you're kind of getting ready, I want to catch everybody up. I want to just give us a word to kind of contextualize what I think we need to see today in our text. And it's the, it's the term good riddance. Have you ever said that or used that term good riddance? Have you ever gotten rid of something that uh, you just couldn't wait to get rid of. It was like uh, a good goodbye. Like, see ya, bye. Anybody ever have a good riddance? Like, I was thinking about it. My wife and I, our first vehicle we bought together. Now, she had a car when we got married. I don't know why she married me to this day. I had debt. I'm less attractive than her. All the reasons not to marry me. But she did, by the grace of God. That's a miracle. But uh, we bought a car together, a little mini SUV. I won't say the, the make of it so that we don't get sued online. It rhymes with gourd is all I'll say. But uh, <laughs> we bought this car and it was a lemon, like it was just a lemon. And I had friends who had this car and my dad had one and they had way better luck with it. But for us, it wasn't a babe, it just like constantly was breaking. And when the day that we got rid of that, it was like, bye, see ya, hit the road, Jack, we're, we're done with you. It was a good goodbye. You ever have one of those? Maybe it was a, a job. Maybe you had that take this job and shove it moment. Anybody ever done that? Maybe you had an employee that was like, goodbye, see ya, yes, please go. Maybe it was a, a government you couldn't wait to see go. Whatever it was, some things just need to be done away with, don't they? And it's with that in mind today, I want us to have this good riddance Word uh, kind of shaping our time together. That's the title of my message is Good Riddance, A Good Goodbye. There are some things in this world and some things in our lives, West, you know this to be true, Halifax, you know this to be true, that just need to be gotten rid of. And there are things in this world that we would love to just say good riddance to, aren't there? Weight gain, good riddance, calories, or the fact that things that are bad for you taste the best. Good riddance, health issues, aging, corruption, wars, politics, prejudice, hate, pride, violence, selfishness, good riddance. I want to keep that good riddance in mind today as we approach the text. And we come to the end of the book of Revelation. We come to the end of the Bible. We come to the end of the world as we know it. 
It's the end of the world as you keep, you know that song. No, you don't know that one? All right, check it out later. REM, some of you are too young for that. If you have a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 20. To get you caught up, I want to give a quick review as to what's going on. We have learned this over the last couple years, that the book carries an invitation. It was given for us to provide grace and peace. And it tries to tell us something. It shows us. It gives us a lens. It's true to its name. Revelation means unveiling. It's here to help us see things that we can't see. The claim is this. Look, things are not as they seem. You need to see what is hidden, what's behind the veil. It wants to unveil some things that are at work right now and that are coming in the future. The purpose of this book is to provide grace and peace to the one who reads it, who hears it, who believes and obeys the words. And we've been taking that to the bank for a couple years. And here's a very high-level overview of what we've seen so far. We have seen that Jesus is present alive and aware and invested. He's involved in his church. The first few chapters show us that. We also learn in chapters four and five that Jesus is on the throne of the universe, that it might look like there are certain powers and principalities at work ruling and reigning, but the claim of revelation is this, that on the throne of the universe is the lamb that was slain. Can I get an amen? And actively, he right now holds the scroll, the the grand plan of God's sovereign will, and he is actively unfolding it right now. And we have learned throughout the book of Revelation that God's wrath is, is being and ultimately will be poured out on the earth in an effort to systematically remove all that opposes his good and perfect will. We have learned as well that God is calling the nations to repent, to be saved right now before it's too late. And ultimately, we have learned, and we saw this last week, that the end is near for all opposed to God's kingdom, that Jesus is coming again soon. Maranatha. Now, I want to read, and I want us to just take a moment. I'm going to ask Holy Spirit to really just let this pop to you. We're not going to be able to unpack it as deep as we want to. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 20, and we're going to roll into chapter 21. And if you were with us last week, we saw Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, return. This is the moment that history as we know it is done. This is the second coming, and the end is unfolding, and forever is about to be launched. And that is the moment that we pick up in. And so we find in chapter 20. Let's read it. I'm going to read it out loud and you can follow along. Remember, these are images of things that are going to happen, but it's painted in apocalyptic literature to help you see things that are inconceivable. It says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. He took hold of Satan. He grabbed onto him, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Now this thousand years, we could dive deep into that. I'm not going to for our purposes today. There are different takes on what that means, but the big picture is really what I want to focus on today on where this all ends up. It says, after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, the martyrs. He saw them. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life, 
They came to life. It's important. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. This kind of special reward for the martyrs. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That thousand years again. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. This is really where I want to start to go and look. And will go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, in all the earth, Gog and Magog. That's, a, that's an ancient throwback to the Old Testament. And to gather them for battle. So he's launching one final assault against Jesus. The number, they are like, in their number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Stay with me. We're going to get there. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. It looks dire, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. I want you to keep that in mind. The devil is thrown into a lake of burning sulfur, the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. If you remember last week, Jesus came back and he threw the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist, into the lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. That's just a, a picture of his glory and splendor. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, this is a different judgment than those who were martyred. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and, the death, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. So there's this picture of this lake of fire, and everything that gets judged against God's will and his good creation is thrown into this lake of fire. I just want you to keep that in mind. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, chapter 21. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. So... God, Jesus comes back. He throws all of this destructive stuff into this lake of fire. It's been removed. And now he says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. The sea represents chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, it's the same invitation of the whole book of Revelation. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has gone away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these are the words, these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, Jesus said, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. 
those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And all God's people said, amen. And that's a lot. This moment that we just read is the climactic moment of the book of Revelation and the climactic moment that has been ramping up and unfolding all through the Old Testament into the prophets, into the fulfillment of the work of Jesus, into the launching of the church throughout the letters of Paul and then through the sequence of Revelation. It is all coming to this moment. And y'all, this is the moment that we are looking forward to. This has not happened yet. This is a moment that is coming that is coming down the road. It's the moment, this completion moment of the redemptive work of Jesus planned before the foundations of the world. This is the moment that God envisioned from the beginning before he even said, let there be anything. He envisioned this moment of heaven and earth being brought together. It was his moment of destiny for us and for his creation to be reconciled fully to him. This is the moment where the king of kings and his kingdom are finally and fully established. This is the moment where all that degrades and destroys and opposes his good and perfect will and his creation is removed forever. This is the moment where Satan and sin and toil and trouble and trial and disease and disability and disappointment and desperation and drought and poverty and disasters and famine and disillusionment and shame and opposition and oppression and extortion and corruption and sexual sex trafficking and abuse and rape and all of the disgusting things that have plagued this universe our entire lives and predating us back all the way to history. This is the moment that it's all done away with forever. It's the great removal where God gets rid of all that destroys and degrades and it's the great coming of the fullness of his kingdom once and for all. This is the day that we, the people of God, ultimately look forward to. Now, I want to unpack it for just a couple minutes and around this idea of good riddance, because if you're like me, you read that and there's a part of you that's like, that sounds awesome and horrifying. And it sounds amazing and I kind of want that to happen, but I'm not sure if I want that to happen. Like if you feel that way, it's a very common thing that happens in the church. And I want us to just sort of step out and see why does John the apostle and why does Jesus say that this book of Revelation is good news for us? Why is this good? And why is this good riddance good, a, good, a good goodbye? I want us to look at this. And I got a few things I want us to kind of unpack today. Three ideas that we need to kind of consider in light of this incredible moment where history is reset, where sin and death are done away with, thrown into the lake of fire, and where God brings his kingdom in its fullness. Three things we need to say good riddance to. Can you say good riddance? Come on, Wes, say good riddance. Good, yes, good riddance. I, I, I know we're allowed to talk now in church, so, so help me out. We're, we're allowed to talk. Okay, no comment. Number one. Let's say, here's the first thing I want to pull from this concept. Let's say good riddance to an incomplete gospel. 
Let's say good riddance to an incomplete gospel and let's get our story straight and embrace a kingdom lifestyle. Now, what do I mean by that? Why do I want to say good riddance? Here, here's my premise. Many of us have an incomplete framing story of the gospel of Jesus. I say incomplete because most of us have elements of the story that are very important, but we stop short of having the big picture in mind. Many of us have framed the picture of the gospel incomplete. And an incomplete picture causes incomplete interpretations, which lead to incorrect conclusions. And so it's important that we have the right framing story. And Revelation 20 and 21 puts it on perfect display as to what this whole thing is all about. Are you with me? Can I, can I unpack this for a minute? Now stay with me. Most of you, most of you probably heard something like this. When, when you were explained, the gospel was explained to you, someone probably put it like this. Now I want to break down the problematic framing story. Eschatological is like end times. That's what that word means. Kind of your theology of the end. Now most of us, and this is kind of the story I grew up sort of understanding is this. Let me know if this kind of resonates. You, uh, the, here's you, you're living on earth, you're doing your best, and you have this life, and this life kind of proceeds. You have a limited amount of time. We don't know how much time we're given. And then at the end of your life, you have a date with destiny. You are either going to go to heaven, try to make a cloud, or you're going to go to hell, correct? Is this? And so that's fire, just so you know. That's the, and so heaven and hell are sort of pitted together as these counterparts of eternal destinations. Am I right? Like, is that, like, I remember being very young, sitting at Olivet Wesleyan Church in Fredericton, while the people, or the good people of Olivet did a play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Uh, I think we did it at King's Valley back in the day as well. And, and it pits this story for us. And it's, it's helpful in some ways, and I'll speak to why. But it's this idea that you have your life and then when your life is over, there's going to be this moment of judgment. You're going to go to heaven or hell. And, and that is true, but that's not the framing story. And I remember watching uh, my dad was one of the character actors in that story. And I'm like eight years old watching people being drugged off by demons to hell. And I was very relieved that my dad went to heaven. But this is basically the story that most of us are given. Now, now, some of you are like, well, what's wrong with that? Why is that, is that not true? Well, there's some things that this gets absolutely right. This idea of this contrast of a story of heaven and hell and you finding your way in it. It gets the utter seriousness of the afterlife absolutely right. This idea that you as a person have got to consider where you will spend eternity. This picture absolutely gets that right. And that is something that everybody should think about. It gets the finality of life apart from God right. This idea of people going to hell. We just read it. That is a real thing. And as much as you'd like to twist the scripture into being this thing that God's just gonna send everybody to heaven in the end, that's not what the Bible says. It's just not. And if you want to take it seriously, let it speak for itself. And it's very clear in those last pages of Scripture that there will be many who go into the second death. They, are, they go with the beast and with Satan and the serpent. They, they, they go there. So that's important that you get that right. And that story tells us that. It tells us of the urgency, that we aren't sure how long this continuum lasts. You should be ready. 
Are you ready to meet your maker? Like that's an important thing. It, te- it speaks to the urgency for us to tell others about Jesus, amen? That people have to know about Jesus, that, that that helps us understand that. So this isn't incorrect, it's just incomplete. It's not the whole picture. There are some problems with this gospel. Like if someone sat down and said, here's the gospel, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven someday. There are some problems with this. The first is that it's me-centered. That the gospel centers around you, that it's something that you have to do in order to take care of your eternal destiny. That's actually not the gospel. The gospel is God-centered. The gospel is what God did for us. That's the gospel. The second is that it's often works-based. If you ask a person on the street, when you die, will God, will you go to heaven or hell? Most will say they're going to heaven. And then if you ask them why, they'll say, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a fairly good person, or at least better than my sister, right? But the problem with that is that it works based. And if you've ever heard Jesus talk, it seemed as though it was more about what he did than it was, more, than it was about what you did. And so a lot of people have this works based, it's based on their deeds. And some of you in church would say, well, it's not based on your deeds, it's based on what you believe. Is it? Some people think that it's based on doctrine. Do I believe the right things about Jesus? But Jesus himself said, on the day I return, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all those things? Did we not believe the right things? For Jesus the, the thing that makes or breaks your eternal destiny is discipleship. It's not deeds. It's not even good doctrine. It's, are you a disciple of Jesus? He said, I never knew you. And so that's problematic. But the biggest problem with this story is that it paints a picture that the Bible isn't really painting in its fullness. It doesn't paint the gospel. Now, some of you are still struggling with this. Like, how is this different than than what the Bible paints? I want to break it down for you. Here's the story of the Bible that gets culminated in the book of Revelation. Are you with me? You're really quiet at the Valley West. Are you there? Halifax, how are we feeling? Here's the biblical framing story. It's not the story of heaven and hell and where you find yourself. The Bible is the story of heaven and earth. It's actually the story of heaven and earth and how God created, redeemed, and restores heaven and earth. If you go on BibleGateway.com or you go on Blue Letter Bible and you type in heaven and hell and you do, a, you do a verse search, you will find zero instances where heaven and hell are spoken of in the same sentence. If you type in heaven and earth, however, you will find about 200 you see, the, the gospel is ultimately the story of heaven and earth. We, we know this to be true. If you read Genesis, we find out in the beginning, God made what? He made the heavens and the, yep, there's heaven. And he made earth. Oh, I don't have green. All right, just, it's just water. And he made earth. And heaven and earth in Genesis up to chapter three overlap and intersect. They are one. And they're ultimately fulfilled in their oneness through what? Through, through people, right? Adam and Eve. They're made in the image of God. They walk in communion with God. Then what happens? It's, so it's the story of creation, right? Are you with me? Hang with me. This, is, this framing story changes everything. It's the story of creation. Then it's the story of desecration, What happens in chapter three? Those of you who know your Bible, 
you, you find out that earth comes under new rulership because people were deceived by the devil and sin enters the picture. And what happens is there becomes a separation, right? There's a, there's a gap between heaven and earth. Are you with me? Is that, does that line up? You've heard that. So sin enters and then you see, you see God say that because this happened, there's going to be all these side effects, curse, correct? The curse happens. And the curse is where you start to see some fires break out on the earth. These are fires. It, it's hell on earth. You see it in Genesis 4 where Cain kills Abel. You start to see it in Genesis 5 where the deterioration of human community just keeps ramping up. And we have this sin problem unfolding. And the biblical view of hell is more of a dominion and a reality of darkness than it is a place. Notice in Revelation 20, it didn't say they went to hell. Hell and death and sin and Satan were sent to the lake of fire. Understand? And so this is the picture we get in Genesis 3. And then the gospel, the redemption story, is what heaven, let's call it reconciliation, or restoration. I don't have enough time. I could probably do 10 more hours. Resurrection, uh, restoration, resurrection, reconciliation, redemption. There's another one. This is the story where heaven... comes to earth to reconcile, to bring back the overlap of heaven and earth. And how does that happen? The answer in church is almost always yes. Here's how this happens. You, if you read, I mean, I'd love to do the deep dive on this. I don't have time. But if you go into Genesis, you, you hear the call of Abraham. What was that? He called a people to himself. And then and as he called the people to himself, what was he doing? He was setting up little intersections for his kingdom to start coming through a people. He gave them channels or ways to unlock the kingdom of heaven on the earth. He says, I'm calling you to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to actually take you and set you apart to kind of recapture my original original intent. I'm going to set up a special people. I'm going to give you the Torah, which is a way to access my way of life, to live a heavenly life in the here and now. I'm going to give you a way to deal with your time, Sabbath. You're going to set up different rhythms that go with the rhythms, not just of the earth, but with the heavens. I'm going to give you a tabernacle. If you read in Exodus, God gives the children of Israel a tabernacle. What is that? It is a portable space that the people of God could intersect and, and engage the living God. It was the space that heaven and earth collide and connect. Stay with me. And then what happens? They, God gives them a what? A temple. A temple. The temple was the place again. It was that place where heaven and earth intersect. And all of those things were pointing to the one who would come to fulfill those things ultimately in Jesus Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah. Jesus is, uh, he is the new, he is the tabernacle. I love that. Did you know in, in John 1 where it says, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us? The word is the, the word tabernacled. He tabernacled with us. That the presence of God came to earth. And, and so the, the gospel story is the story of restoration. It's what Jesus did to bring heaven and earth together. Oh, that's good news, y'all. 
That changes everything because if the gospel isn't just that believe Jesus so that when you die, you go off to heaven someday and there's this hell thing and hopefully we avoid that. It's actually much bigger than that. It's about the restoration of all things. I'm very excited about that. I'm not sure you are. It's about Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, coming to earth, offering himself in our place to make a way. I just read it this morning in my one-year Bible that the, the, the veil in the temple split from top to bottom. There is no more separation in Jesus. So when you come to Jesus, you are literally stepping out of the curse and into that intersection of heaven and earth forever and ever, and nothing could ever take you from that. And so we live in the light of that reality. This is what we see. It's what you see in Revelation 21. Did you catch it? Like the whole point, the whole conclusion, the dramatic conclusion of the book is not the heaven or hell scene. It's hell being done away with forever and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. And what else we see? We see the holy city coming down from God. This intersection, this overlap, it's been restored. And we see this beginning of a new end. This end of a new beginning is probably a better way to say it, where God has done away with all of the infection that has happened on his good creation through sin. Hallelujah. This is the gospel. That's the story. This is the story that the first church believed. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite scholars, he said, for the early Christians, what mattered was not saved souls being rescued from the world or taken out of the world and taken to a distant heaven. Now, some of you are already asking the question, where are people who die? Are they with Jesus right now? The answer is yes. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But the coming together, it's not that they rescued from the world and taken to a distant heaven, but the coming together, everyone say together, together of heaven and earth themselves in a great act of cosmic renewal in which human bodies were likewise being renewed to take their place within that new world. When Paul says we are citizens of heaven, he goes on at once to say that Jesus will come from heaven, not to take us back there, but to transform the present world and us with it. Yes! This hope for resurrection, for new bodies. How many of you, as you're getting older, you're like, man, I'd like a better version of this. <laughs> I see that hand. I see that hand. For new bodies within a newly reconstituted creation doesn't just mean rethinking the ultimate destination, the eventual future hope. It changes everything on the way as well. That's why I wanted to bring this up because if you believe that it's just about believing the right thing so you go to heaven someday when you die, it doesn't really affect your life that much. That's why there are so many Christians who confess Jesus with their mouth but die, deny him with their actions. But when you believe that Jesus died for the restoration of all things and that new work has begun in him, and he invites it to begin in us, and that ultimately it will be fulfilled forever and ever and ever. That changes everything, and it puts an onus on new creation right now. Jesus did not die so that it would be relevant for you someday. He rose so that power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, will start to affect you now. Oh man, I'm, I'm way more excited. West, I hear you, West. 
Here's a couple ideas as to why this matters. Why the right end matters. Number one, it brings us to worship. It causes us to worship. Like when you, how do you, when you look at the world, do you see God's fingerprints on it? Or do you just see the things that are degrading and destroying and, and, and dysfunctional? Like get out in nature once in a while and be reminded that when God created the heavens and earth, he called them what? Good. He said he was good. When he created people, he actually said that's very good. It wasn't a mistake. His creation was never a mistake. He did it on purpose. And it's beautiful and brilliant. And when we have this kind of recreation of all things mentality, when we see that the end is actually God coming down and bringing like earth and heaven 2.0 together. It's this incredible upgrade. It changes everything. It shapes, it, we're, we're shaped by it. Number two, it compels us toward discipleship now. When we believe that Jesus is reconciling heaven and earth, recreating and restoring all things, we invite and embrace the process of transformation in us here and now. It's so important. Like uh, you can go read this when you get home. First uh, Corinthians chapter three, Paul says, when we God's people, we will be judged. But when we are judged, we aren't judged for salvation. The works have already been done. You, if you believe in Jesus and you say, I follow him, you're, you're good. But it tells us that we're going to pass through fire and the workmanship of our lives will be revealed. And it actually speaks about the fact that some people, most of their life and what they value will be burned up. They aren't created. They aren't recreated. They aren't heaven ready. And this points us as we kind of get this framing story in mind, we start to think, okay, God, transform me now. Make me into a heavenly person now. Begin that recreation in my life. Let me think like you think. Let me value what you value. Let me talk like you talk. And one day you're even going to bring my physical body into order. That's how we need to think, to let the, the new creation shape us. It requires engagement with God's mission in the world. We are the body of Christ. We are now the temple or the dwelling place of God. If you want to know where like heaven and earth overlap, it's in the people of God right now. We are the portable, I love this word, nexus. So nerdy. A nexus, what's, what is it? It's a portal. Did you know that you are a portal for the kingdom of heaven to invade the earth? How cool is that? Like that should fill you with wonder at very least. Like that God actually wants, if I could go back and it erase, but if I go back and show you that heaven and earth overlap thing, God actually wants to invade and start the recreation process in other people now through you. That's incredible. And then ultimately, it produces powerful hope and expectation. When you start to believe that the end that is out there for you and I and the end that is out there for this world that we live in is that Jesus is going to come back and eradicate all sin and death and dysfunction and establish a forever that is unimaginably good, it starts to change you. And it starts to create this gravitational hope and longing. Here's the second thing I would say that I, I, we need to say good riddance to. But the first is this, good riddance to an incomplete gospel. Some of you have a gospel that just isn't good enough. 
The gospel is more than Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. It's that Jesus came out of great grace and mercy, that while we were yet sinners, he died in our place, paying the price of all of our sins, which we are all guilty of. And he rose in victory, the first fruit of new creation by the spirit and the will of God. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you and I as a foretaste of what we have to expect forever and ever and ever. It gives us a glimpse like in the fruit of the spirit where we get that taste of peace. We get that taste of fulfillment. We get the taste of satisfaction, the gentleness, the courage, the hope, the the joy that comes from the spirit. It's a foretaste of the inheritance that you and I have. How amazing. How incredible. And so what that should cause us to do as we engage the full story, the grand story, this is such an incredible story. And it's true. And we're invited to live in it right now. And as we start to embrace it, there's something else we need to say good riddance to. And this is what I I, I gather. And this popped out really big as we read Revelation 20. The people of God are the people who say good riddance to an infected universe. We don't want sin here. Amen? We don't want it. We, We don't want decay. We don't want disease. We don't want suffering and illness and loss and toil and all the crap that we deal with as human beings. If that is true and Jesus coming in judgment and wrath will bring that end, what should our response be? It should should be, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Is the music playing already? I'm, I'm not done. I'm not done. Just give me five. Give me five. You can stay there if you want, though. It's a good goodbye to all that's bad. The believer who has a correct view of the end actually welcomes the judgment of the second coming. Let me say that again so it registers. Like some of us, when we think of the second coming, we're terrified. We're like, oh, I don't know if I want that. No, If you have a correct view of the end, we should long for it. That's where that Maranatha thing came from. It's like, Jesus, you can't come soon enough. Has anybody felt that lately, actually? Just like maybe the extra stress or the extra difficulty that you're going through? Like, Jesus, you cannot come soon enough. The only reason that we would want Jesus to, the old people say, tarry. We should bring that word back. Should the Lord tarry. The only reason you would want the Lord to tarry is for the sake of other people finding Jesus. That is the singular reason that it would be better if Jesus took his good old time, just so that more people could come to know Jesus. There's no other reason. And if you have a reason in your mind, like, ah, I remember thinking one time, I want, I'm, ready, I, I'm good to go to heaven, but I'd like to kind of live my life. Anybody, right? You have a short-sighted view of how incredible forever is. See, Paul, Paul knew this. Paul said in, uh, in Philippians, he was telling in his letter, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if I'm gonna go on living in the body, I'm doing it for the purpose of fruitful labor. What? To, to reach people for Christ. He says, I don't know though, I'm torn because I actually desire to be with Christ. I want that end to begin now because it's better, which is better, not just by a little bit, by what? 
It's by far better. See, heaven is not a downgrade, it's an upgrade. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So it's only for mission. If you don't want Jesus to come back for any other reason other than trying to see your family member come to know Jesus or trying to get one more person to know Jesus, any other reason is biblically inconsistent. It's biblically inconsistent. We want the judgment. We want Jesus to come because the moment he returns is the moment our troubles end. Yes, it's the moment our troubles end. I, I've been th- to be fair, I've been thinking about this for weeks. And so you're just catching up now. But sometimes we just haven't thought about what would the world be like if we said good riddance to illness and decay and rust and breaks and bruises and loss of sight and hearing loss and prosthetic limbs and wheelchairs and aging and wrinkles and aches and pains and arthritis and weight issues and shame and hospitals and prisons and lockdowns and locked doors and oncology wards and chemotherapy and heart monitors and and canes and crutches. What would the world be like if we said good riddance to humiliation and degradation and injustice and racism and gangs and crime and shootings and violence and protests and insults and accidents and disasters and wars and famines and sickness and pain and sorrow and crying and loss and death and problems. How amazing would that world be with just those things gone? And so we are the people who say good riddance. When we, when we, when we think about the wrath of God coming, we understand that like a surgeon, like if you have a giant cancerous growth right here, you are not wanting to wait any longer, are you? You want health. And that is the right understanding of the judgment for the people of God. It's, it's necessary. We long for it. I, I love how N.T. Wright talks about the necessity of judgment. He says, judgment is necessary unless we conclude absurdly, absurdly that nothing much is wrong or blasphemously that God doesn't mind very much. God is utterly committed to set the world right in the end. I love that. This doctrine, like that of the resurrection itself, is held firmly in place by the belief that God as creator on the one side and in his goodness on the other side, and that setting right must necessarily involve the elimination of all that distorts God's good and lovely creation, and in particular, all that defaces his image-bearing human creatures. We long for that moment. We long for that moment. Now, some of you are like, I'm still struggling because it doesn't seem fair that, that yeah, I, I like that, you know, Satan is going to hell, going to the lake of fire. I like that death is being thrown there. I like all that. But I, I don't love the idea of people going there. No, neither do I, neither does Jesus. But it's not unjust. And it's actually not even unmerciful that in the end, there will be people in hell. C.S. Lewis says it best. He says, and this is in the book, The Great Divorce, which is an incredible book that I can't recommend enough. It actually, the divorce is the divorce of heaven and earth. Anyway, he says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past, these people's past, and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He's done so. He already did that on Calvary, on the cross. 
Are you asking God to forgive them? Have mercy? They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Is that what we have to ask? Alas, C.S. Lewis says, I'm afraid that is what God does. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. See, we say, come Lord Jesus, because it is merciful. Like if you read through the book of Revelation again, one thing you can try to find is like the picture it paints of the martyrs. They are longing for justice. They're longing for the judgment of God to come. Like how much longer before you avenge what we have had to go through? It is merciful, it is necessary, and it creates the moment for which we all are longing for, the moment that heaven and earth finally and fully come together. This isn't just a picture. It's not an allegory. It's a reality. In the end, there will be no sin, no Satan, no crying, no mourning, no shame, none of that stuff. And so third thing, and this is just really to set us up for next week. The third thing we need to say good riddance to is good riddance to an insufficient hope. We've got to start recapturing the gravitational power that comes from having a living hope. Not just in the person of Jesus, but the promise. Like Paul said, if we only have like this life, you should pity us more than anyone. Like if Christ is not risen and there is not this coming kingdom in its fullness, you should pity us. But he says, Christ is indeed risen. And we have this great promise, this inheritance that we look forward to. We don't have time to unpack it today. But that picture, it paints in Revelation 21, then it goes on and it starts to give us just little tiny glimpses of how incredible the end is going to be for those of us who get to be there. The reality is many of us, actually most of us at most times, unless it's forced upon you through tragedy, we don't think about the end, do we? We don't think about heaven and earth together. We don't think about the coming, the fullness of God's kingdom, unless you lose someone you love or unless you're facing death yourself. But the reason we do that is because we, we don't believe that heaven is actually an upgrade. We're gonna spend a couple weeks trying to imagine heaven together to see how incredible what it is that God has in store for us. But we're missing out when we don't think about it. You know that? Like you're missing out on a power that comes from having a big hope. Is anybody looking forward to something right now in your life? Like we told our kids that we're gonna try to take them to Florida next January. And they're already like eyes and sights set on that day. Like, it's going to be awesome. They're making plans. They're like, I'm going to bring this to Florida. Like, bud, you don't need to pack. We're like 12 months out, <laughs> right? But there's, there's a power that comes from knowing that joy is in my future. And it actually powers you through the pain in the moment, doesn't it? It actually tethers you. Like so many of us live unanchored lives and we're tossed around by the ups and downs, aren't we? just whipped around by life and setbacks and pain. But that's not how it has to be. We can be anchored into a weight that is actually far greater 
than any weight in this world. That's what Paul was talking about. Let me end with this scripture. Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, like in all of the difficulty and suffering we go through, he says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. We're looking forward. Since what is seen is temporary, this, I have to tell you what, whatever it is you're going through right now is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. We have to recover a hope that is big enough for this life. Amen? Like that is what, that is what is ours as you read this. This is this huge hope. We get this incredible vision. I know it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around, but like just for one minute, I don't want to get too far into what I want to do next week, but like just think about the Super Bowls happening today. If you're watching this next week, you already know who won. Go, go Bengals. But like there's going to be this glory at the Super Bowl. Like it's going to be incredible. Thousands of people without masks and just having fun and just seeing this conquering and like all and like, but y'all that, that is, that is just a foretaste, a temporary drop. That's it's a, it's to wet your appetite for the meal that is ours forever is all that is. Like, think of the fun at that. Or like, did anybody see that hole-in-one at the Waste Management Open? And nobody watches golf, I know, right? There was a hole-in-one, everybody went nuts. And it was like, I would just like to be there just celebrating and, and marveling. There's, there's, a, there's another gif, I see it coming. <laughs> but like, those fun moments in this life are just a glimpse, a glimmer of what is ours forever. Like think about the best meal you've ever had with your best friends or family and the, the joy of just knowing people you love and being known by them and good food and vitality. It's just a foretaste. Think of the power of the romance and the love that you share with your spouse. It's just a foretaste. Think of the pleasures of this life. They're just a foretaste of what is ours forever. Church, we have got to recover real hope. Amen? We need to say good riddance to insufficient hope. We need to say good riddance to the infected universe. And we need to say good riddance to an incomplete gospel. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that when you created all things, it was a good idea. Thank you you were not surprised by sin or Satan, that but from the foundations of the world, Christ was crucified and redemption was always the plan. Thank you that as we come to Jesus, we literally step into recreation. Our sins are forgiven. Our past is covered. Our future is secure. And we are right now known by the living God. Thank you, God, for the even now reality of the kingdom of heaven. But God, I pray that the not yet component would rise up in our minds and in our hearts and that we would long for your return that we would be Maranatha people. God, I pray for the one who's here today who's just struggling with the pain of this life. I pray that the power of the hope of what we have to look forward to forever and ever would enrapture them, would absolutely come upon them in such a way that it pulls them out 
of desperation and anxiety and despair. Father, thank you for our hope. Thank you for the truth of this word. May it rest upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen, and maranatha.